0: Welcome to this omnibus edition of my podcast where we put bad feelings on ice and just accentuate the positive. And that's going to be easy this time around because I've got someone who worked on this particular story to tell me their favourite things about it. I'm Toby Haydock. My special guest is a former script editor of Doctor Who. Uh, Well, welcome. Uh, We're still in lockdown. We're still in cold storage. I have an ice-cold, non-alcoholic lager. Ice cold because uh, I brought it from a chill centre that seemed to be run by a load of Nazis um, whose parents all liked classic film criticism. Uh, and with that in mind, uh, let's try to watch a story that has been to so now. This is curious because, in fact, what I'll do is I think I'll get my guest, who I haven't spoken to yet, who's told me the story via email, and I'm now going to go forward in time and speak to them because they want to do this as a, as a two-way chat rather than them doing a monologue to camera. So uh, I'm going to speak to my special guest who actually worked on the show, worked on these episodes, unusually, to tell us why this is the one that he has chosen. So I'm going to go forward in time to a bit that hasn't happened yet.
1: Okay, so I am Andrew Cartmel. For my sins, I script edited Doctor Who. I did all of the Sylvester stuff, all of the Seventh Doctor, so I did three years of Who, uh, and it was fantastic. And there is going to be a a Blu-ray release of a box set of season 24. So I, uh, because I'm being interviewed for some of these, I re-watched season 24, uh, except for uh, Time of the Rani, but that's another story. Uh, and I was very struck by Dragonfire. I was surprisingly pleased with all, with Dragonfire, uh, Paradise Towers, and Delta and the Bannermen, because they were early works, if you know what I mean. I was just getting started, just finding my way forward, but I was surprised really at how much I enjoyed all of them, especially Dragonfire, and especially because of the quality of writing of Ian Briggs.
0: so thank you me from the future I hope I was well Uh, and thank you to Andrew who's given us his reason so unusually for this what I'll do is I'll watch the episode and I will nominate my thing Uh, and I'm going to watch but I'm going to watch all the story through and nominate my things and then tomorrow uh, I'm going to do a chat with my special guest and they're going to tell me so there's no way I can cheat I mean I haven't been cheating and I, I, I wouldn't cheat but uh, you can be rest assured because uh, there's nowhere I know what my special guest will choose because uh, I, uh, I, I don't have, I don't even have the raw footage which will be captured via Zoom uh, in the next day or so. So with that in mind, I'm flying totally blind apart from to know that my special guest Andrew Cartmel wants me to watch a story he worked on, Dragonfire, and I have the DVD in. So in whatever medium you are watching it, please, please press play now. See, I, I, I actually moved my Blu-ray player to, to make it easier for me, but I'm still pointing at where it used to be. <laughs> uh, uh, it's a Blu-ray, yes, and DVD, DVD player. This is on DVD. Uh, the title sequence is looking gorgeous uh obviously this is the title sequence I was I was alive when this was on this is this is I watched these episodes go out as broadcast uh and it was terribly exciting although I haven't seen dragonfire for quite a long time I have to be honest uh this is a season I've not revisited a lot and have struggled with in the past but this was... I had a really soft spot for Paradise Towers, and I will explain why when we do that. But this this was the this was the voted the best story of the season. This was certainly the one which was felt to be sort of more like traditional Doctor Who. Um, and this is a, I lo- really like this opening. I was thrilled that Tony Osoba was uh, was was back, although I, I hadn't really realised. Uh, that he'd been Lan in Destiny of the Daleks I knew him as an actor in other things he was Chaz in Dempsey and Makepeace and he was in Porridge and he cropped up in Bergerac uh, and this is Sean Blowers who at, at around this time he he looked like an actor that you knew from things and I, I, don't, I don't think he did but almost at exactly the same time uh, he... he he did London's Burning and and became a regular and I think the head of the, the fire department and London Burning London's Burning was a hugely popular show. Um so so it seemed like they got him sort of early or concurrently or so. And one of the other extras in the queue of most is Rain Knight. Now, the reason Ray Knight is important, he's the, the, bald, the bald, red-headed one there. The reason Ray Knight is important is because he actually was the head of the Extras Agency. I love the I love the guns. I love that because they actually fire a thing. That, that's a really neat effect. That's a really neat effect because it suggests sort of laser bullets. And I don't know how they did that. It looks really cool. Um, but, yeah, Ray, Ray Knight was the head of the Ray Knight ag- Extras Agency. He was the barman in Auf Wiedersehen pet. Um, which which meant he occasionally got a credit, but he was a non-speaking character. But uh, yeah, I discovered later he also supplied a lot of the extras. So clearly, if he fancied a job as well, he went. Yeah, I've got, uh, I've got, uh, I've got the six extras you want. Uh, there's Jim, John, and there's one that looks and sounds a bit like me. Um, so not a big part for Sean Blowers, although he makes a decent account of himself, and that's really chilling, uh, quite literally. But that's a great way to introduce the villain um, and his thing what he does which is freeze people to death with his hands uh and then put his gloves back on uh i love edward Peel in this um and that's a nice model shot of the of the planet i like um so yeah this seemed more like what doctor who should be trying to do to me at, at the time you know um i <laughs> have <laughs> Have to say, setting it in a freezer centre uh, is is not the, sort of what I recall when I think of this being the one that you know, was doing what Doctor Who should have been doing, which is which is you know being scary and having aliens and uh, and, and and having villains who are a bit like Nazis. I believe Kane was originally called Hess, wasn't he? Um, but the name was changed. Less the <laughs> incarcerated war criminal Rudolf Hess was somehow offended, I don't know. Um, and and Now this is interest, this is where, I I wonder how I'll take this, as I say, I haven't seen this for a long time. I was delighted Glitz was back. I'd loved Glitz in uh, Trial of a Time Lord. Um, and it was very pleased when he came back at the end of that. And so was thrilled. Uh, when, when he returned for this it gives a nice bit of continuity with the previous season Tony Selby had done an absolutely fantastic job uh, and he's got a lot of charisma uh, a lot of roguish charm great costume uh, great uh, Zizzy Space sideburns uh, I always was rather sad that he never brought Dibber back Dibber played by Glenn Murphy who was at around this time in London's Burning with Sean Blowers London's Burning was a big show at the time as well it's largely forgotten now but it was it was hugely successful and i was delighted patricia quinn was in it because i'd got into the rocky horror show which was quite a risque thing to be into when i was whatever age i was 1987 this was so i was 13 uh and the rocky horror show was about as naughty as it got but also it had lovely music and it was a horror pastiche and it was a sort of culty thing and, and and we somehow got hold of the video and we've got a we've got a a, a a record of it as well not sung by the original cast some weird rocky horror sing-along thing not not a sing-along but a, anyway it doesn't matter um but patricia quinn was magenta uh, so again when she was announced as being in doctor who that was very uh, it's it's quite an eccentric performance she gives uh, because you think of magenta in rocky horror And she's a bit, and you go, oh, she's giving it sort of Transylvania. Oh, no, she plays everything like that. (laughs) And I think she's quite a character. She was married to Sir Robert Stevens, who uh, was uh, in The Box of Delights with Patrick Droughton, who was Aragorn in the BBC's radio's Lord of the Rings. Uh, So she had all sorts of reasons why she was an exciting uh, reason to be in uh, Doctor Who. Uh, and she's flanked by Stuart Organ and Stephanie Fairman. Stuart Organ was in everything at around this time as well. It was Harry Cross's son in Brookside. And I don't know if he joined Grange Hill at this time or was just about to. But again, he seemed whoever his agent was, he was he was popping up everywhere. Uh, although him and Stephanie Fairman don't have any lines in this episode, I don't think. They're a bit like there's a couple of characters in Delta and the Bannermen who were in it. Who get a credit in episodes one and two, but one of them doesn't say a line and it turns up in This is the Creature, Leslie Meadows, and one of them has one line. And you do sort of go for a, for a show that has to be budget conscious, you're, you're, you're paying some actors full whack to, to hang around not saying stuff. They're both uh, t- Tony Asoba's uh, uh, also turned up more recently in Kill the Moon, so he's one of those that has been in Classic Who and Old Who. And I've been to his house, uh, and he's had a really interesting career. Uh, my, oh, Edward Peel knows how to play a Doctor Who villain. Um, I love the way the, in the space canteen. I, I don't know how I feel about the fact that this is trying to be in the mind's eye of its creators. This was, why don't we do the Star Wars cantina on Doctor, in Doctor Who? Um, and between that brilliant idea and the budget and the design department, I haven't really noticed the, the fruit shapes adorning the back of the bar because of course, because it's a program that has to be suitable for children, it's a bar that serves milkshakes. and I, I was never sure about that as a as a child. I thought at least do a pan, you know some space booze, you know, call it a pangalactic gargle blaster or whatever. But but milkshake, um, uh, you're you're not going to wait the Star Wars cantina doing uh, d- selling milkshake. Although it does mean that uh, everyone gets to go to sort of town um, dressing the extras in the back with costumes that presumably have previously been in, in other episodes of Doctor Two and Blake Seven and things. I do like the um, the look of the villains. You know the the, the 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 white costumes work because of the ice, of course. Uh, but there's also the sort of Nazi stormtrooper thing going on uh, it's it's interesting how we, we always there is the, the, the sort of Nazi iconography, that great Mitchell and Webb sketch, we're we the bad guys but it, it the Nazi you know menace does infuse our popular culture and in a way that makes it a sort of subliminal warning um, Edward Peel's got very smoky burny eyes hasn't he and I remember at the time, the director Chris Clough said, when when the casting was announced, uh, you know, there, there was always there was, there was a sort of cold coldness, a granite-like uh, aspect to his his, his face, uh, and a sort of coldness to his stare that uh, that had that had attracted him to to uh, Edward Peel and the casting of Edward Peel, and 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 it is it, and he he was well known for being the chief in in Juliet Bravo at this uh, at this time. Uh, Uh, yes he, I, I mean I'm not sure how I feel about the fact that um, Glitz uh, is a lovable rogue yes who's who's won a won a treasure map in a card game he's a lovable rogue who has sold his crew um, they never quite rationalised this because it wasn't <laughs> it wasn't originally Glitz was it it was a different character and they they turned it into Glitz which I think was a great move um, but but i don't think you can be a lovable rogue and sell your crew to be deep frozen and turned into um cadaverous ice mercenaries mm-hmm. sophie aldred a uh, a true legend of uh doctor who uh, a fabulous fabulous person uh uh and i i she'd done a doctor who convention at this time so i'd actually met her one of the two Doc Two conventions I went to. and I remember Tony Selby was there as well, and he signed my thing. and, and I waited and I waited and uh, and then he said, "Have I done you?" I said, "Yeah, I'm just just waiting for my pen." He said, "Is that literally what you're waiting for?" And I mean, I was only young. I was come on, Mister Selby. I, I wanted I needed my pen because I, I didn't want to bump into a who person in the corridor and not have a pen for them to sign my thing with. So yes, it was literally what I was waiting for. Um, Sabalom Glitz and, uh, and of course I kept it was only a sort of normal biro. And I kept that biro for a very long time because I thought, well, it's been touched by various Doctor Who luminaries. Uh, you don't throw things like that away. May not seem important now, but that's what they said about Fury from the Deep. And, and now, look, but uh, that pen has, since I'm afraid, been erased from the Haydock archives. It's a, ni- it's a, it's a nice. Sort of human subplot that poor old Bellaj, oh, and the names, yes, but Bellage has this sort of subplot of of something has gone on with her and Kane, although if I've seen what his hands do to people i' don't, don't quite know what happens uh if the temperature if the temperature rises high enough south of the belly button anyway um but this is i like I like this subplot um and, and i love the way he uses his hands uh and and the way indeed she does uh where she sort of pulls away um yeah'm I'm, I'm not sure how that works as a contract but it's a it's a great it's a great image the image of you know being burnt by ice and i'm sure that glitz's spacecraft haven't destroyed i'm sure that was in the trailer Uh, because I used to tape the trailers at this point on cheap Yashima videotapes that I'd bought that probably disintegrated by now. Um, And I I seem to... Oh, and Shirin Taylor, I was delighted, was in this because she was in everything during the 80s uh, and has a lovely dusky voice. This isn't the sort of character she normally plays. Um, And her and Tony Selby and Tony Asoba are all mates and they all live quite close to each other. She's, she's done loads of work, terror sure and, tell, and I, was, I remember being quite surprised that she was playing a part, A, a part that was like this, uh, and B, a part that's not actually that that huge a part. Although her other Doctor Who part is not huge because she's uh, she's one of the two campers who gets absorbed by the ogry in uh, the, the, the Stones of Blood. Um, and this guy, Ian McKenzie... I'm sure he, in the stage, he wrote the obituary of the guy that played Hector in The Myth Makers, Alan Haywood. There's a piece of trivia that you will get from no other podcast. Ha, <laughs> ha, 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 ha. Reminder to self, don't just talk about the actors. Um, ah, well, no, there is an element to this story that I absolutely adore. That I, I, I like the plastic bags. That's not, that's not the element. Um... But yes, and I also Shirin Taylor is credited as customer. And I remember when it was announced that she was going to be one of the guest stars, and it said, you know, uh, uh, Patricia Quinn, Belage, Tony Sober, Krakauer, um, Shirin Taylor, customer. I was going, is is perhaps that said? Is it customer? No, no, it's it's literally just c- customer. Um, I think I think I'd have got my agent to say, can she be called Jane the customer, uh, or as it's um, film? They're all named after film. Uh, uh, Practitioners or, or um, uh, 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 critics aren't they? Well, f- f- film film analysts, film theorists. A lot of the characters uh, are named after, aren't they? So perhaps she perhaps she should have been called Barry Norman. <laughs> um, but what I, I actually I, I like the naming policy in this because Krakauer and Belage, uh, Podovkin. They uh, they they're, they have a consistency, even though I th- they come from disparate sources. But but they also are really interesting on the on the mouth and of on the ear and and, and give it its own own feeling. Um, and and Ace is a refreshing change from Mel. Although I'm very well disposed to Bonnie Langford these days, and I was very angry with her as a youth, and I'm uh, because of what she represented. Um, and I th- I think. The media and we, as a country, have been quite beastly to somebody who is a national treasure. Uh, Who is Bonnie Langford? Who is a very, very skilled and able performer? Um, I don't think she's particularly well served by Mel, Um, and and her certainly her image at the time was of somebody that it was, it was easy to be lazily cruel about. As and you know, I I have less patience for lazy cruelty um, dispensed at the expense of people whose. Uh, main sin seems to be to try their very best to entertain us. Uh, I th- I think there are people for whom we could reserve our ire who are perhaps more deserving of it. Um, and Bonnie Langford is was great in EastEnders, and she's brilliant on stage, and she's very lovely. Um, uh, but 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 certainly Ace is a is is a is a is a worthy attempt to sort of m- m- you know modernize the, the Doctor Who. The companion. I don't think a lot. Some of her dialogue has aged. I say it hasn't aged well. I, I'm not not sure it was in particularly fine fettle uh, when it was born, uh, and 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 I and I think she's better when they try not to to ripen her dialogue. Um, hard to do these sets. I, I like the lighting in this actually, and I love that. That's a great moment when Glitz chops the map. And, uh, <laughs> and the doctor does that. I like little bits like that. But I think, I think you have to be absolutely therefore deadly serious, the 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 rest of the time. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah, this this is she. And she announces herself, doesn't she, by going, uh, "Okay, I've got this." Although that deodorant is very unwieldy uh, to hold that and spray your armpits at the same time would be very difficult. Um, <laughs> but I, it's a great way of. Uh, of announcing what your that your new companion is not quite like, you know, song and dance lady uh, <laughs> uh, uh, Bonnie Langford, but is a delinquent arsonist. Ha, ha, ha. And it's a credit to Sophie Aldred that she has a likability that cuts through what would otherwise be quite alarming. Um, ha, <laughs> Uh, and I love, the, I love the scenes in here, um, and, and helped very much by I what I... Am I going to choose? I'm going to choose it for one episode, and I don't know which one. Dominic Glynn's music, which I think is absolutely superb. And I'm not just saying that because he's done the score for one of the other podcasts that I'm doing at the moment called Indefinable Magic where I muse on mm, arcane things inspired by Doctor Who. This is actually a very nice set, uh, augmented by that photo backdrop, uh, and the fact that there's a bit of color in the ice. Uh, yeah, I, I think that works very well. It's a shame. Nowadays, of course, you'd give you'd give everybody, uh, and it wouldn't be so difficult to do. In fact, I think there's a company that do it. Uh, you'd give people cold and cold breath, and I think there's a company. I remember once saying on on an episode of Inspector Morse somebody credited as footsteps editor. I Think, oh, well, how do you how, how do you decide that what you want to what, what you're going to be the doyen of is editing the sound of footsteps? But there's also a company whose you know main line of business is to add cold breath to uh, scenes that cold breath has not shown up in in the movies because uh, it was never there or, or the conditions weren't right or or whatever um she it's funny i always thought of uh patricia quinn as being quite tall i think because magenta in the rocky horror show is very vampish but she's actually she's uh she's not of great stature um but she's got a great presence um and i'd very much i've never met her i i suspect i'd be terrified of her <laughs> but she seems like quite a character um and, and I think when when her and Robert Stevens were, were together on shoots, it was uh, it was quite a lark. Um, uh, and Sylvester McCoy gamely uh, and sometimes ill advisedly do, doing slidey acting. I admire the intent there. This double level set is actually excellent. Uh, and, and, and having the actors positioned up there to give a sense of scale. Uh, is really good i really like this main set actually i mean i think it's a it's an impossible task designing uh an ice center and you can see there they've done it with some white curtains um uh and actually you can see the edge of the sort of the edge of the uh the thing that it's that it's hanging off um but i uh this is but this is great scene this is a great scene uh and 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 it, and it showcases you know why you go why have these people followed kane because he's sort of mesmerizing uh and and it's played brilliantly and and it's staged brilliantly and she's great Sophie julie's brilliant in this scene because she, you can tell she's sort of you can't even see mel because it's she's good enough actress Sophie Aldridge that you, you know you, it's it's on her face and you're seeing everything that's going on there, and you've got Mel sort of as a noise is off, uh, and this the music is 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 pulling you in. This is an excellent scene. Freezer, great scene. Um but actually uh is she tempted? Because it turns out that uh <laughs> freeze, don't freeze. That's great. Um and he and you know and he doesn't let up with his villainous acting stuff. So when she's being being all sort of thuggish uh, uh, and and modern, as it were, he's he's keeping it entrenched in the sort of you know sci-fi theatrics. That was a great scene. That might be my choice. I might save Dominic Glynn's music for a later instalment. But Dominic Glynn's music is excellent in every uh, every story that he does. I, I really like Dominic Glynn's music. I don't know why what... <laughs> this is one of the great... I know I'm supposed to be being positive throughout this, but this the, this cliffhanger is one of the stupidest moments in the entire history of Doctor Who. And I remember it finishing, because this was really hugely plugged as as much as it could ever was at the time, of this was the 150th Doctor Who story. So this was quite big news, and I think a few of my friends at school did tune in because... There'd been a bit of extra stuff, and the monster looks good in this in this episode because we we haven't seen how tall he isn't, um, and that's a that's a great shot of the of the monster. But couldn't could they have dubbed the Doctor saying something like "I need to get down to that ledge below"? There is no explanation, visual or vocal, as to what the hell he's doing now. So, if all of my school friends who tuned in to watch the 150th episode of Doctor who, watched the episode that ended with the Doctor. Actively getting himself into jeopardy, uh, and it's it's a great shot, uh, and it's and it's well rendered, but it's <laughs> it's nonsense. I've got to. This is terrible. I've got to phone. I've got to speak to Andrew Cartmel um, t- tomorrow or the day after uh, 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 on a celebratory thing. Uh, and, I, and I've, done, I've just finished it by saying that's really silly but it is really silly I cannot deny I have to be positive but also I'm you, you know I'm not'm I'm not I'm not mentally ill <laughs> I, 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 I I cannot uh, I, 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 I cannot say that that cliffhanger is anything other than uh, utterly baffling um, now I know that they, what they'd wanted to suggest—that was a ledge that he was trying to climb down to. That is not clear. With the best will in the world, that is not clear. Doesn't matter. So, um, doesn't matter. Um, because there was plenty in that to enjoy, and uh, and I and I think uh, Chris Chris Clough was. Uh, I mean, I think all the directors this year actually worked, worked their socks off. Again, I have I love Paradise Towers, but we'll talk about that when somebody sets it for me and they haven't yet. And I'm doing an embargo on McCoy stories because everyone was choosing them and uh, I've only done one Hartnell and the McCoy era was being eaten up. But Andrew Cartmelt of course has to choose uh, one that he worked on. Well, he doesn't but I think we get a better better insight. I think we'll hopefully get some bonus content by having direct from Andrew's mouth what it is he loves about this. So I've got to not do the... uh, the, 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 the thing where I, I, I concentrate on the bit that doesn't work because there's plenty that did in that. Uh, I think I will choose the scene where Kane tries to get Ace to take the coin because I think that well, I love that set, I love the music, I love the performances, uh, and I think the whole scene is rendered uh, extremely well. So that's what I've chosen. I've no idea what Andrew's chosen, so let's go forward to the future. Uh, and I'll chat to Andrew Cartmell. Um, okay, Andrew, you don't know this. I don't know what you're going to say. I have chosen my favourite things. They're, that is committed to camera, I cannot lie. So I've written them down <laughs> so, so that I can't cheat. So when you go, I've chosen the third icicle on the left, I go, yeah, I've got that. Um, so I have chosen my favourite thing from episode one. Uh, so what is your favourite thing from episode one of Dragonfire?
1: And uh, why? Well, I, I have not broken it down by episode, but I guess if we're going to say episode one, it's going to have to be uh, Sophie Aldred because she's going to be in there somewhere and she makes her first appearance as Ace in episode one of Dragonfire. So that's got to be there.
0: Ah, well, mine mine sort of includes her, but uh, I chose I chose the coin scene. The coin scene because I just thought everybody in that scene was firing at all cylinders uh, from Sophie, who I think acts it brilliantly. You don't actually see Bonnie Langford, but her presence there is really important, sort of trying to, you know, drag Ace to the good side. And Edward Peel is so amazing, of
1: course. This is Take the King's Shilling, so, yeah. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. I like, sell your soul to the devil scene. Yeah. Eddie Peel as, as Kane. Uh, I love the bad guys. The thing about, I mentioned the quality of Ian Briggs' writing. I've always praised Ian for the the depth and nuance of his characterization and if you look at this the bad guys have all got something going on they're all interesting they've all got relationships i mean kane has got his his dead beloved right he's uh, he's a tragic figure this is really good stuff
0: well eva i even the poor old we're well, so so uh, that so that is episode uh, 1 there was a little bit of crossover but um, we both chose different things which is fine that means there's lots to enjoy <laughs> Isn't that amazing? I had a guest on this podcast. This is supposed to be a podcast of me just sitting at home watching Doctor Who, but I'm fortunate that I reached out to Andrew and he very kindly decided to to, to bestow his uh, insight and experience of working on this story uh, into this process, which I hope you've therefore uh, benefited from and enjoyed. That was part one of Dragonfire. I'm just going to stick my hand in the... In the, near the whirring blades of the blender, to add some random jeopardy to the end of this particular installment, uh, and let's hope that uh, <laughs> I get rescued before um, uh, uh, perishing because of my own b- baffling motivation. Uh, anyway, that's the start of uh, the 150th Doctor Who story, the end of part one of that. Thanks ever so much to my guest, Andrew Cartmell who I haven't actually spoken to yet, Um, but for your purposes, it's all rolled into one. Well, let's not hang around too long, because we need to resolve the cliffhanger to episode one of Dragonfire. So this is episode two, and in whichever form you're watching it, please, please, press play now. Um... It's gonna be interesting to see if this camera, which is looking like it's on the Titanic, uh, stays up for the whole of this. Uh, It's as wobbly as the doctor's motivation for hanging off his umbrella uh, at the edge of an ice crevasse. Um, Nonetheless, I am here to accentuate the positive, especially as the person that has chosen this adventure for us to enjoy at my house hello you're very welcome here um is Andrew Cartwell, who script edited the show and I guess the argument that this period this season anyway because I think the production values d- drastically improve in seasons 25 and season 26 is whether it is correct to be very ambitious on the budget that they have and my instincts are always to say yes um there's a phrase in Doctor Two the Discontinuity Guide says something like, You've got to you've got to admire lofty ambitions. They're talking about the web planet. And I think you do have to admire lofty ambitions. I think when they wrote this they thought it would look like Alien. Or they had Alien, the film in or Aliens in their certainly later on in episode three, Aliens in their mind's eye. Um, and they got this. And the gulf between the two is larger in some sequences than it is in others but i remember talking to a comedian i apologize if i've said this in another commentary but i don't think so because i've only i've only really thought about it recently and he said it to me a while ago fine comic called jeff innocent who's a very cockney sort of geezer guy but he's he likes old telly not he's not a card carrying geek like like us i love ace's response to the killer alien and, uh, and, the, and the sparks hang around on the screen, don't they? They burn themselves onto the screen. Yeah. Uh, um, and he said, well, he said, the problem with television now is that they're, they're too busy trying to convince you that it's real. When I watched telly as a kid, uh, they, you know, they just assumed you knew that. So what he was basically saying was, you know, yeah, Juliet Bravo didn't look real on, you know, videotape on an obvious set of a police station, but you... But you but you accepted that that's what the program makers wanted you to do, and it's not a victory of yours to go, "I can see through this artifice. you You haven't won anything except that you've not therefore been as receptive to the storyline and the performances and what the, the the writer is trying to tell you. you You don't win by catching the program makers out, and I think we try so hard these days to to, to show how clever we are. I say, I say we, I mean I mean those people that don't like telly like this uh uh, modern people um it seems you know and 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 television critics who have a bad reputation i think with good reason largely i i know any number of eloquent articulate doctor who fans some very young ones who would make better television critics than the ones currently writing in national newspapers um they, they can write and they aren't quite so snide or keen to show how clever they are they actually have a joy in in something um but it seems to be t- to be a television critic there are honorable exceptions um uh, is again to do that sort of very dismissive thing and as somebody no i don't want to sort of separate myself out Though there. there's lots of us have made stuff but as you know as somebody that does does sort of creative stuff find that the glib way that you know stuff can be dismissed that's had a lot of hard work and skill put into it and doesn't always work. Um, uh, I, my, I am still more on the side of the people <laughs> putting in the work uh, than those sort of sniping from the sidelines. Even that said, I, you know, the bits that I picked out on episode one that I struggled with, I genuinely did struggle with, despite trying my hardest not to. I, I'm into my <laughs> Sylvester McCoy. Uh is is a great clown he's a great physical performer um, and and is always trying to do something (laughs) sometimes whether he should be or not that was funny that was funny Uh, again I think to buy that sort of humour you have to be dead straight elsewhere which is why Edward Peel is such a boon Um, and and Tony Selby sort of does both He, he 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 has the lightness of touch to be the charismatic rogue, but he also, you know, knows when to stop messing about and and you know give it a bit of guts and drama. Uh, I liked Glitz. I'm rather sad Glitz never came back again. Um, he was very much a favourite character of, of mine, uh, even though I th- he was supposed to be a character called Razorback, wasn't he? Uh, that's right. Ah. Um, uh, and and having something set on an ice planet is a is a is a good wheeze. Uh, and and it, in places it's that, that they put it off, and, and the rest of the time it's a sort of it's a suggestion. You know, we get the idea, and the and and the and what's Bellage up to? She's got this nice and these these guys move well. And this this guy at the front, guy called Nigel Miles Thomas as Podovkin. There's Ray Knight, King of the Extra Agency. Um, and, uh, and oh, and the, and I'll talk about Nigel Miles Thomas when he comes back. Hold that thought. Um, when somebody listened to the the pilot of this, the first one I did, Anthony Turns and thank you Anthony and his friend, they were moving moving house. Said uh, I I lost threads too easily, so I'm trying not to. Um, but it's it's hard. I'm watching it live in real time. Um, I, I like the sort of past that they give Kane and the and the 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 the, the guy the, the sculptor. He has a he has a little bit of a sort of subplot in the uh, in the novel. I recall. Oh, the novel! It was the closest I had been to actually being part of Doctor Who, which was a which was oh, it was beyond my wildest dreams. I love the fact that Ace has got the ladder. That's brilliant. She is gutsy. The novel of this uh has etched into the ice uh walls uh ah which is my friend andy holding who knew alistair Pearson, who did the covers and he and on the other side i think it's above the doctor's umbrella is th which is toby hadock which is me which was the only way uh, uh sort of conduit i had to anything actually tangibly doctor who um and and apparently on on later re-releases the 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 artwork has been treated so that the the uh, the initials are less obvious. Although I have to say, in later novels, the initials weren't even etched into ice; they were just sort of splurged there. At least at least in my day, they were subtle. Uh, but anyway, so yeah, if you if you look on your novel and you see a th etched into the ice, that is actually me. But I, I love this scene and I love this guard. Uh, I mean, it's silly and it's comedic, but it's well judged. It's 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 very funny um, Chris McDonald does it very very well and you sort of think oh why haven't I seen him in much uh, what's it? it's because and I was told this by a comic called Jim Tavare uh, who'd done a lot of work in the States and I then worked with him here when he was back he's since been in a quite a serious car crash Jim he's a lovely guy I hope he's okay um, and, and he said oh I'm mates with an actor out there because Jim had done a Harry Potter uh, and so then moved out to the States and and and, and acts you know actors uh, on, on screen in the states as well as being a comic um and he said oh and there's this mate of mine who's another expat actor I think they all hang around together and he did he did a Doctor Who uh he's called Chris McDonald and I went ah oh, that's what happened to the funny guard from episode two so uh, he's actually had a, a a decent career doing sort of bits and bobs uh, in the states so uh I, I did send I did I did send Sean Lyon at Gallifrey um offer, offering to to put them in touch but uh, but because uh, 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 he's in LA, um, but I don't think that's happened uh, yet. Uh, uh, she's a certain t- type, isn't she, P- P- Patricia Quinn? Uh, who did she reminds me of? Somebody and I can't remember who she did just did then for a moment. Um, I love the furry dice. That is a great touch. That's exactly what my spaceship would look like. I'm not allowed to use wide angles because um, I get into trouble if there's a mess and there's usually a mess and it's usually my fault. So I would definitely have... (laughs) Oh, and he's got... I don't think I'd have the leopard skin. They will have had great fun dressing the set. Um, But yeah, that scene with the guard and it's, you know, uh, uh, what is it, auxiliary uh, production, whatever it is he says. Uh, It's very funny. Uh, and a sort of mickey take of of too serious, a mickey take of Doctor Who the Unfolding Text, isn't it? Uh, uh, which was a very serious book, which was advertised a lot in Doctor Who magazine and I never got because it was really expensive, uh, but it seemed to be such an amazing thing. And it was actually those people be, being a bit, <laughs> being very serious about Doctor Who and examining it as you know the unfolding text. It's It's actually a very interesting, uh, book once you've done a drama degree, but if I'd bought it at the time, it would have absolutely baffled me. Uh, and John Tullock, one of the writers of that, was rather famously pictured being uh, pulled from the wreckage of um, the 77 uh, tube bombings. He, he recovered, thank goodness, but uh, I think has, has, has had difficulties since. But um, but he was he was a he was a rather famous uh, picture of of somebody being rescued. Um, the poor. The, uh, it's rather sad the poor old uh, the poor old sculptor but that's I think that's ambitious you know to go well we have this extra he's not a, doesn't even get a credit there's somebody behind them in the set That oh no that's the plot um, this is not, he does a good job I like the way he because he's close enough to grab them and or kill them but he Nigel Miles Thomas there he does a sort of uh, I am not quite human and I am thawing out a bit acting which which sells the fact that the two women are able to escape. Well done, Nigel Miles Thomas. Who I believe this was his first television. I only know that because he, uh, uh, this one convention, one of two conventions I was at. I think Sophie Aldred talked about the fact that it was her first telly and that uh, when she'd been sent to make up, she'd gone. But I don't, I don't have any makeup. I don't need makeup. Um, well, of course, everybody in those days would need would need makeup for to for TV to sort of show up. Um, and to uh, you know to, to, to accentuate the right bits. And uh, apparently Patricia Quinn went, oh, it's her first telly, and they were all quite surprised. But it was Nigel Miles Thomas's first telly as well. I don't know much sadly about Nigel Miles Thomas. I hope he's well and happy. Uh, next on your list of well, ah, uh, and I think this was was this in the trailer? I, th- I think this scene was in the trailer again. Because I, I I had I, I, I taped the trailers and put them on the end of of, of the other tape. Uh, so I had, I had Time and the Rani and this on one videotape and Paradise Towers and Delta and the Bannermen on the other. What a dilemma, you know how, because you could only fit seven episodes. So a four-parter and a three-parter. It was, it was such a relief when subsequent seasons it went four, three, four, three. Um, oh no, it went, yeah, because this season it went four, four, three, three. And that—that was—I'm sure. I, I like to think John Nathan Turner went. The fans would like them to be in chronological order on their videotape collection. Such things were very important. And I love I, again Dominic Glynn. The chunky ding, chunky ding. Um, that unfortunately, that's a that's that's not a great angle because it's the one angle where you can see that Mel doesn't actually bump her head. Um, but of course these days you wouldn't have to shoot that in real time uh you, you could cheat it you could also cheat it in the edit you could do all sorts of things i mean you yeah uh, but but it does allow for this this is a great shot seeing him through the stairs uh and the chunky chunky music and and i like the way the face has been made up to be all sort of frozen um it's uh I, I, I think the frozen mercenaries work work quite nicely, and, and very much helped by that that music. Um, but that was great. That was great shot through the stairs there. Um, but yeah, M- M- Mel managed to knock herself unconscious whilst not hitting her head. Um, oh, Doctor! Yeah, and. Now this is, yes, this is a very, very much the image of what Doctor Who was was doing at this time, uh, making, I mean, you know, ap- apart from those bits that we don't count where the Doctor kills things, the Doctor generally doesn't kill, but, the, you know, there's, there's that's very explicit there. There's the brilliant sniper scene in Happiness Patrol. Uh, and this is interesting because these two look like they're getting a storyline that's... Uh, that's... Um, Looks like it's going somewhere because you don't realize that because uh, these two are ostensibly, ostensibly, you know, quite big guest stars, so you expect them to to make it to episode three. So I remember that being being quite a surprise. Um, I really like Tony Asoba He's he's got a he's got a, he's got a good quality as an actor, uh, and he's had a he's had a decent amount of work, but. Um, uh, you know, then turns up in kill the moon and has about three lines. It's an, an actor's lot, isn't it? I have a long and illustrious career, but you still, you know, later on having to go, well, oh, well, a job's a job. And it's not, it's not bad by, by today's TV standards as a uh, one, it's good to get a job in TV anyway. And, 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 and it was certainly not a blink and you'll miss it. I just, I just rather hoped he'd have had more to do. And he did get in the radio times when it said guest stars, it said, um, uh, Hermione Norris, Tony Sober. So somebody in the Radio Times knew that sober being there was was big news. But uh, he, 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 he 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 turned out not to be long for his trip to the moon. And this is a really interesting this this and this Wizard of Oz thing with Ace is a is a is a nice attempt to sort of marry the sort of fairy tale with the the science fiction because obviously they're really wedded to their their science fiction, uh, hard sci-fi, and their films and all of that. So to, to give give her this sort of fairy tale backstory is a nice idea. Um, and and to have her slightly damaged is really interesting. And and I might talk about that when it's time to do Curse of Frenric About, um, well, I don't know when I'm going to do that. But I remember my drama teacher at the time saying. The idea that a lead character should say to somebody else, "You're an emotional cripple," uh, was 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 quite harsh. Was quite hard um, and strong stuff. Uh, and and the whole thing of the Doctor's journey with Ace is, it's a very interesting dynamic and not necessarily a comfortable one. You know, she's a she's a damaged, delinquent teenager who's, you know, escaping from difficult things and and and, um but it's never over egged it's there lurking uh with without ever getting in the way of you know let's go come on let's go and have a sci-fi adventure which is exactly as it as it should be um so yeah crack hour having been nasty bad guy at the beginning is 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 now going oh well well, i've had a chat with magenta from the rocky horror show Uh, i shall now try and kill my boss um, who's of course we've got Nosferatu, the spaceship. Kane is slumbering like a like a vampire, um, so it all all sort of ties in uh, quite nicely. Um, and and it is quite a sort of vampiric performance. It is quite a cadaverous. Uh, he has he has quite a cadaverous thing going on does uh, does this cane and the the makeup helps to sell that that's that's nice the way he looks in into shot there uh, and, and this is yeah glitz going oh yeah this is this this is the reason this man is now a zombie is essentially because I sold him for not very much money um, which which <laughs> Which is an odd way to try to get us to sympathise with Sabalom Glitz, uh, and especially, life, especially when it turns out that because of a bit of a quick rewrite that is very elegantly done in episode three, uh, Mel decides to go and stay with him. Uh, yes, for your first TV, Nigel Miles Thomas, you've done a good job here, as uh, it's. I think it's hard to play, uh, zombified uh, and. He he emerges uh, without without embarrassment. I would say it is a good good job. And then the the now this is Leslie Meadows as the alien. And I was talking to somebody the other day. Said it was designed, it was designed um, to be worn by a very tall actor, tall thin actor, a bit like um, you know the alien in Aliens, an in Alien. Uh, but instead. John Nathan Turner's mate Leslie Meadows, uh, which is I guess why he's got a bit of a tum there. Um, who was a short, who was a short guy, and and John Nathan Turner. I think it's interesting. I mean, again, I was I was I jumped on the Furious bandwagon because I was at the right age. So to do, uh, you know, history tells us that Doctor Who wouldn't have lasted this long without John Nathan Turner, and a lot of the things that he did were very canny uh, and very uh, smart. But he also made Mistakes which Dr. Producer didn't, but um, but then getting your mate who's all, already been on holiday in Delta and the Bannermen. When we do Delta and the Bannermen, there's a character called Adlon who doesn't say a word, who is played and credited on screen. Leslie Mezzos, uh, it's almost like John, John, John's. It's we need a part for John's, mate. Um, we'll get to play Adlon. Who's Adlon? Just to, doesn't do anything. <laughs> we'll, we'll make a guy called Adlon. Uh, uh, and uh, is there a part for Leslie in this? No, well, give him the monster. But he's five foot, nothing. Uh, The monster's supposed to be seven foot. Doesn't matter. I want Leslie to do it. Um. (laughs) Um. (laughs) But as my agent said to me when I first auditioned for the Royal Exchange Theatre, having for many years told me how cliquey they were, when I then got the job, she went, oh, that's excellent because they're very loyal. (laughs) And you go, it depends what side of the fence you're on. And uh, Leslie Meadows there going, well, John's being very loyal. Oh, talking of the Royal Exchange Theatre, the person that cast me was an illustrious casting director called Sophie Marshall, who is the daughter of Daphne Oxenford, who is the archivist here, uh, who was a, a mighty fine actress who... I was going to say, has appeared in New Doctor Who, but she was edited out of The Unicorn and the Wasp. Her last telly was as old Agatha Christie in The Unicorn and the Wasp, and the scenes did not make it to broadcast. So, yeah, Tony Sober may have only had a handful of lines in Kill the Moon, but at least he was still in it. Oh, as Mark Catus is... Uh, is it Le- is it Les McQueen? <laughs> it's a shit business. It, it can be a very very cruel business, and uh, it, it you know long service does not stop you being prey to the misfortunes and indignities it foists upon you. Um, it was such a surprise. So Krakauer's dead, uh, and now Bellage is dead. But of course, because this has to be sustained, you don't get the you you don't get the 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 hiss of the ice so it wasn't clear to me that she was she was dead but she is dead and krakawa is dead so there's two very promising supporting parts played by good actors um i think patricia quinn's performance is quite odd but uh tony asoba's great um and actually i've I've liked patricia quinn slightly better this time round. um uh uh, but they're gone. those characters are gone so um that, I remember that being quite quite a surprise because I thought they'd have they'd have more of a part to play um, so yeah it's it's I wonder how it would have how it would have helped to have had a, a a taller monster. I think the design is is rather nice and it's it's not unlike that of the alien. Oh, and this is a neat moment. Of course, what a surprise! That's a and that's a great plot surprise. Oh, the alien is the treasure. Great, um, and it's a sort of and the lighting's nice there, isn't it? Because they're being the, the dragon fire is is shining upon them. Um, oh, and I used to do this. I used to. I remember being in the kitchen garden doing this. I want. I, I always like playing Doctor. After three thousand years. Dragonfire shall be mine. Oh, that's that's why you get into acting to do to look at a camera and say, at last, after three thousand years, the dragonfire shall be mine. Um, glorious. Well, I enjoyed that. Uh, very much. Um. Patricia Quinn gets a single single caption. Ace is quite low down because she's not a regular yet. That was the way that they did it. Chris McDonald. In the states yeah there we go um so oh, so what was my what was my favorite part of part two? Oh well it's the scene with the guard i think it's very nicely judged it's very nicely played it's a bit daft but uh I forgive it. It's not embarrassing. It it it's played and pitched in the way that it was intended, uh, and it sits nicely within the action. Doesn't outstay its welcome, and it's not done with too much of a nod or a wink. I I think it's yeah. So Arnheim isn't he? Arnheim the the auxiliary performance code guard and that, that whole scene I'm not just picking the performance although he does play well. I'm picking the the whole scene so it's not me choosing an actor uh, oh I was going to check what Andrew Cartmel was going to choose but he he, he he hasn't done it yet well he, he may well have chosen he hasn't told me so I have to go forwards in time to speak to Andrew Cartmel on Zoom to see if he too has chosen Arnheim the guard and that scene with the doctor <laughs> And so for episode two, now this was an embarrassment of riches. I could have chosen anything from <laughs> the Dyson Glitz's <laughs> spaceship to uh, the little subplots for something. Even the sculptor I could have chosen because I like the fact that even an extra has a little bit of a tragic arc. He makes a thing and then gets <laughs> killed. But I chose in the end. I wonder if you all have chosen it. I chose Arnheim, the funny guard, and his. Uh, and and the trouncing of him through um, the semiotic thickness of a performance text, which I just think okay. is brilliant. <laughs>
1: we are on the same on there. I completely concur because again, this is this is Ian's gift for characterization, but it's also his gift for comedy because this guy is set up like you expect him to be a non-speaking guard, and you expect a really boring kind of piece of uh, tiny piece of plot about how we get around the non-speaking guard and the doctor instead decides to sort of double bluff him, uh, blind him with science. And then Briggs does this magnificent thing, that the guard has been desperate for, for some deep conversation. <laughs> and he's just he's so pleased. And everybody loved this. And in fact, they needed, they needed for him to go on some more. And we needed some more um, obscure um, technical uh, blather. And so I just sat at my desk, in Union House, and I reached across the window, so there were a bunch of books, including a bunch of free books that John Nathan Turner got because they were Doctor Who related. And there was this very uh, highfalutin analysis of Doctor Who, which I, I'd chuckled at before, and I, pull, I knew that it was full of, full of uh, thickets of crazily technical prose, so I pulled that, that, that bit about the semiotic text, I just lifted straight from a book <laughs> about Doctor Who. And when Briggs heard it, uh, at a at a run through, he just burst into laughter. So that was we sort of added a little bit more, but I just I just love it, uh and it's it's so very Ian. And also, it's wonderful because it that's where we begin to open up the possibilities of the mischief, the intellectual mischiefness, mischievousness of, of Sylvester, the Sylvester Doctor.
0: <laughs> well, good. But um, I, I foolishly I should I should have asked you what you'd chosen first because you could cheat now and go. That's what I was going
1: to choose. But... Well, the thing is, I the trouble is. I don't divide these up by episodes so that was one of the things that was floating around right you know in the snow globe of my my mind okay. was that fantastic scene because it's it's so funny and it's <laughs> it's so very briggs and it's also so unusual it's very sophisticated in its humor it's just it's just great so that was up there okay uh, so we... also I, I didn't know where the cliffhanger you know that the famous cliffhanger cliffhanger is that Ep one or Ep two? Is it Ep
0: two? Well, uh, what the, the the cliffhanger of the oh, really with the umbrella? No, that was Episode one. I'm afraid I I I, I did st- struggle to rationalise the cliffhanger. Have you got something to say about that? About well, that that, that
1: was crucial because it's not my favourite moment, but it's a crucial moment to talk about because Ian and I are so fed up over the years about people banging on about that. So Ian's actually sent me through the original script so you, we can see what's wrong. What happens is in the script. Is not that the doctor's walking along a gantry against an ice face. He's emerging from a tunnel so that there's no way forward. He's just he's look it's a sheer ice face that he has to climb. If he's he's either gonna have to go back or climb down the ice face. So he, he ends up trying to climb down the ice face and doing a cliffhanger because there was there is no other way. There is no alternative. But that's the way it's physically shot makes no sense at all because he's just arbitrarily hanging off a uh alpha railing but what i'll do is i'll send you that that well, i send oh, you what my, what ian sent me <laughs> that, that fragment of script because it's it is a failure in the directing sorry chris clove but you know somebody looked at the script and thought well we can't do it like that so we're going to do this other thing without thinking this other thing makes no sense
0: Yeah, maybe if they're doing it on Blu-ray, they could CGI in a shelf uh, just below that he's crawling to try and get to or something. But
1: even then, uh, why is he... Why is he crawling down, yeah. Instead of continuing uh, uh, horizontally. But in the script, it it did make sense. And I'll send you the script so you can see that. And so Ian and I are both a little knocked about... Because people are right, it makes no sense at all. But maybe it did make sense.
0: It made sense on paper and somewhere between there and the screen. It's actually a lovely image. That, that final shot is great. It's just the entire audience is going, but I still don't know why he's done that.
1: Exactly. <laughs> Which is the sort of question that it's crucial for directors to always ask themselves, what is the meaning of what I'm putting on the screen? But be, because of the atomizing effect of the way you shoot things out of sequence, broken up into short scenes, it is possible to just lose track of the overall meaning and overall arc of things which is why it's so crucial for a director to keep an eye
0: on Well, I'm back, not from outer space, just from the future. Um, So you now have seen what Andrew Cartmel chose and whether he and I were in accord. As I record this, I have no idea it's curious Um, time can do strange things for example you can wait for something for 3000 years and not bother to find out whether your home planet's been destroyed or not but uh, uh, so I'm just going to check that now so I don't get any nasty surprises Uh, and I will see you lot uh, for part 3 but that was it for Dragonfire part 2 at last after 3000 years I get to look into camera to the end of an episode. Well, welcome. I hope you haven't waited 3,000 years to watch the final installment of Dragonfire with me. We're going to mine it for the positives. Let's, uh... Let's see what we find. We're going on an ant hunt. Press play. Now. So, yeah... My initials were on the cover of the book. That was such an exciting thing to happen. Um, You know, I thought... thought if you could be a part of Doctor Who somehow, life would be complete. And it's very nice to make a modest contribution to some aspect of the show. I've been very lucky. Life still throws its things at you, though, doesn't it? (laughs) But when it does, Doctor Who... Uh, is there, um, and 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 I I don't know what my life would have been like without it, and I certainly couldn't have imagined as I watched this at home as I did at the age of uh, thirteen. Gosh, um, so the th- I think the three part length is really nice. It's sort of, I mean, it, 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 I mean you know stories are only told in twenty five minute. Longer than that not now, and it does give the McCoy era a certain sort of sort of raciness. These 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 capers, you know, um, f- fly by really. Um, and the contrast between this and Delta and the Bannermen is is nice. Um, and I like these two characters, Bazin and McGlughan, uh, who weren't in episode two didn't say anything in episode one. And so I was very much puzzled going, what, what do these guys do? But then the trailer for this uh, had the bit where McLuhan goes, you know, and it comes along in the darkness or whatever. So you knew that they were going to get a, a, a bit to do. But uh, yeah, Stuart Organ was uh, was all over the shop uh, back in those days. Uh, and of course, he's now famous for being... Mr. Robson in Grange Hill, who started, at, I think, as the PE t- teacher and became became the headmaster. Um, uh, and Stephanie Fairman as McGluean has popped up in in various bits and bobs over the years, and I like her in this. Uh, but she, there is a curious moment that we will talk about when we get to it. So that's something to watch out for. It's a bit that's always puzzled me. Um, I do like the, the fact that the map is an old, it's an old treasure map. I, I like the sort of old-fashioned. It's quite heartwrench, isn't it? Let's let's go on a quest. Um, you know where it's it's very self-consciously uh, a, an adventure, a treasure hunt. He's. Um, you can stop sliding about now, Sylvester. We 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 get the message. Uh, Although he does do it very well. Uh, I sometimes think. Well, I was going to say no little and often not uh, <laughs> well done man there's Bonnie Langford there trying to get some banter going with Glitz uh, because because otherwise it's a Leela Andrit kind of situation yeah yeah I like I like these two they've got quite a nice dynamic and I like the reverse that you know the the tall bloke is the slightly uh uh Scared and inexperienced one. This is this is the bit that was on the trailer, I think. Uh, and 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 that the the sort of smaller woman uh, is is the hard case. Uh, I like I like that I like that. Um, and again, they're you know they're minor characters who are just a sort of little bit of a subplot, and you know that they're, they're aiming for the aliens by this is this is hicks and hudson <laughs> but in you know tv center six or wherever it is they are don't know where they are um uh actually i'm watching this i i am impressed with the lighting i think the lighting has worked wonders to to transform these sets which uh you know you can sort of tell there's a bit of cellophane and a bit of this and a bit of that but um but but in in terms of how they're going to create the illusion because of course if this was a film you'd you'd have different angles you'd have each shot would be individually lit uh this this set's magnificent magnificent and the and the height that we get on the cameras here is is uh, is rather marvelous uh, and you can see that Chris Clough was absolutely right, in in what he wanted from uh, from Edward Peel was this sort of intense, icy, uh, chilling. You know, all of those sort of cliched descriptors for for, for uh, somebody who lives in a uh, in an ice cave slash freezer centre. Um, I mean, do, do do they need the freezers because they they are on an ice planet? It doesn't matter. Um, and I remember I was I went to uh, this Panopticon convention, so this this was the the one this was the one after I'd met Sophie Aldred because she was announced at one I went to, so that was eighty seven, and had, and hadn't been in it yet. I think they called her up on stage as the winner of a competition, and then it was revealed. Oh no, this is the future! Did anyone recognise her? Because she'd been announced at, at that. Yeah, she'd been announced at that point, but she'd not been seen on screen. And so, of course, that you know, whoever the MC was, I think it might have been Nick Briggs, said. Uh, and did you did you recognise her? Uh, and a, loads of people went, yeah. And it's like, well, yeah, mm, I bet you didn't because because uh, you didn't get that feeling in the room of people go, oh, that's the new companion. So anyway, that was quite a nice. That was quite fun, uh, and I did meet her, got her autograph then, and she was very friendly. She gave me my pen back, uh, and um, I, <laughs> um, and um, and then at a, a late a convention I was at, must have been, because uh I asked a. Qu- oh yes, he gets shot. Uh, that's quite horrible. Um, um. Well, well hidden, Stella. <laughs> I'd hidden under the table. Um. I asked a question, and I got was so nervous. My, I asked the question of the Sylvester McCoy writers panel. Ian Briggs went on it, therefore, uh, as was Andrew Cartmel, and I said, you know, was the, was the Melty Face moment there? put to be a big moment because it was consciously the end of the season and they said no um, but they said it more politely and i think at more length than that and i really stumbled i'd got i'd got the question in my head um and uh uh, 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 uh but it it, it 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 didn't come out as easily as i'd hoped suddenly the momentousness of the occasion d- uh, affected my uh, vocal cords, um which seeing as i've i've since interviewed Ian Briggs and Andrew Cartmel and uh, had the great pleasure of of chatting to quite a few who h- 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 luminaries um, uh, you know I, I, I still never quite lose that those childhood nerves going I'm talking to the people that make the thing I, I love um, yes the little girl wondering about is you know it's they're trying to do aliens aren't they uh, aliens is a fantastic film uh, oh that's nicely lit and again we have to appreciate the lofty ambitions uh and those you know really atmospheric bits in in aliens but you get the closer in that you get the close-up of the 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 radary bits you know and the and the and and the and the bleeping on the on the monitors um uh, which suggest the menace that is all around you that you cannot see and and of course you, you you've got you've got much more access to sort of you know Foley and sound effects of post-production and post production all that sort of thing. This is all shot in real time and with a limited number of cameras, and those cameras all have to be next to each other, etc., etc. Um, uh, so, you know, it's never going to look like Aliens. I think. I think if you if you're a kid and you know of Aliens, you probably shouldn't have seen Aliens, but you know. Um, I think you appreciate the homage. Uh, yeah, I like the Basin and McGluen um, subplot for what it's it's trying to do. Even though, uh, yeah, I mean, is it is it wise or is it foolhardy to try and ape a multi-million pound dollar movie in a TV studio? <sighs> <laughs> She's quite good. I hated her at the time. I found her utterly pointless. Um, but but she actually she makes the dragon rather sweet um uh she's fine she's fine um i wonder what she's doing now miranda borman um oh and yes and of course that uh, they all go on to i remember that i didn't do the commentary for this i was given the choice of happiness patrol or dragonfire and i chose happiness patrol because i think that's quite a fascinating one um but i, re- I remember being in because i was there when they recorded it uh, I, I remember Chris Clough the director going another crap model sorry and I, I, I admired him for that um, I mean, think he's an absolutely fine model I, I, I like the model work in this uh, to, I, I like Tony Selby there realising that you can't you can't thump too hard on the doors lest they give way I actually like the model work and I prefer this sort of model work to uh, CGI um, but maybe that's just because that's that's what I was used to when I was, was brought up. But I like a good old model. That's that's great. Um, and boom. But but this does throw up the... Because Glitz gets very cross here, I recall. He sort of goes, Kane, And you go, Right, so you're more upset that he's blown up your spaceship than he was that he zombified your crew. Um... Yeah, this is good acting from Tony Selby. Yeah, you mean business, Sabalom Glitz. Uh, although, of course, when we met him in *Trial of the Time Lord*, the first thing he and Dipper tried to do was shoot the Doctor. So um, he's he's a changeable fellow. I think we can generously say about Glitz um, that's an actor being good value and both on and off screen. And people going, "Okay, well, we we might have to." Tinker with what you've given us In order to To bring you back And make more of you Which is Which is fine Um, I do like The Doctor's costume Apart from The question marks Uh, It's It's got a a, He's he's got a good silhouette Um, Yeah so he's Yes he's been zapped And he's got Slightly blackened shoulder uh, I do like Ace's um red tights. They're quite fun. Um oh yeah cuz he's uh Kane Kane is waiting for her in 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 her in her bedroom, isn't he? Um um I, I like the fact they've made no attempt to make the, the shopping basket space age. Uh, uh I, I, I don't know where Kostoma has been. Um, Barry, where Barry Norman the customer has been um, because she's obviously unaware that the entire uh, oh oh the poor, oh the poor dragon that the, the the entire inhabitants of the bar that she left her child in have been <laughs> utterly destroyed um, so I don't know what, yeah I don't know maybe she's off, off her knackers on space milkshake, right this is the bit that is curious for me. Um, this I I think this is quite n- nicely done in that there's a bit of smoke going on when they chop its head off. But Mr. Kaymont's head, I I ain't never leave a job half done. She, uh, she's playing the part in RP and that uh, that works for me entirely. She nearly lasers her knee then. Um, uh, but so where that line comes from? So maybe she was written uh, in you know to be a bit more uh, c- colloquial or regional or whatever but it, it just means that she's doing all of this very severe, very good, sort of RP, severe space guard sort of thing. And then she says the line, "'I ain't never leave a job half done.'" That And that doesn't even actually mean anything. I, I ain't never left a job half done. I, I ain't never gonna leave a job. That, 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 that sequence of words, I find it entirely baffling. Um I wonder if I'll, I'll probably forget to ask Andrew about it. So anyway, they. but I like those two. And uh, sorry, then I feel particularly sad for S- Stuart Organ, who seemed like quite an affable sort of fellow. Uh, and he suffers the same fate as his more severe, um, more seasoned, slightly more sadistic um, cohort, uh, who uh, is, is as cavalier with the life of a benign alien spaceship as, as she is with c- c- colloquial language. Um but that's neat that the that the monster is the treasure. I really like this uh, this model of the of of the planet and and the fact that they, you know, highlight the fact that it's got that 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 light that that light side at the bottom and the and, and the dark side with the with the shopping centre on it at the top. That's a, that's a really neat image, uh, and again Dominic Glynn doing wonders with the soundtrack. Um, so and of course this was the end of the season um he got Doctor Who for 14 weeks of the year which seemed like slim pickings back in the day <laughs> um I, and I know we sometimes only get 10, 12, 30, 40 but, but they're they're longer episodes um but also I mean you know I came off the back of Doctor Who when it was on being on for for you know a good 20-odd good weeks while stocks last. Ah, he's great. He's, he's, he's entirely consistently good, is Edward Peel. Uh, uh, and this is, of course, the end of, of Sylvester McCoy's first season. And he's he's, he's really sort of got to grips with it as he's, He's gone on, I think it was a bit of a baptism of fire for him. Oh, I've not noticed her her hanky before, I quite like her hanky. Has anyone cosplayed the hanky? Somebody cosplay the hanky. That teddy bear had a marvellous career. He was in several episodes of Bergerac. He's dead now, I wrote his obituary. Um, uh, Sophie Aldred knows how to stand as if she's been captured and is desperate to escape and yet can't because of the confines of the shot and the nature of the, the way the television is made and blocked in those days. She's, she's giving good angle. Yeah. That's a good, that's a good stance. Uh, and, uh, and Ian Briggs, who I've had the uh, honor of interviewing, he actually came to Manchester, bless him. Um, uh, and, and wouldn't let me pay for his train fare what a kind man and he's he's emailed me a couple of times in covid actually is a really interesting mind i mean i, I have to say andrew cartmel's um recruiting policy for writers showed again great ambition i, do, I don't think season four quite 24 quite comes together but I, but i think its shortcomings are, are, are often in the production department and productions do get better in in 25 and 26 but I I think Andrew Cartmel came to Doctor Who with great ambition but also a desire to give a break to writers he thought were interesting rather than just to go for people you knew could you know you knew could do the job and deliver on time and blah 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 blah, which was which was often celebrated and and that's another good reason to, to celebrate somebody in the treadmill that was Doctor Who in the 70s say Sophie Orge is great here. She's 100% convinced she's going to die. It's great. Um, uh, But, you know, to say Doctor Who is something where we can get young, hungry writers to really use their imagination. And, you know, in in this case, to wear their influences on their sleeve. You know, there's nothing wrong with being influenced by good films. This is great. This is suddenly, you know, this is the climax. I I don't know what those those panels lighting up particularly... So sort of oh, oh yeah, and it's a spaceship. Yeah, the whole colony is a spaceship. Boom. That's a, that's quite a big moment. That's a, that's a decent model. So, and it's the end. You know, this is the climax. So yeah, the colony is a spacecraft. We're taking off. Uh, he's got his power. Uh, yeah. Um, this is great. Um, uh, and, and 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 those those yeah those writers that that uh, that 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 cartmel wanted to sort of hone over the series and i think if the show had carried on you know we'd have seen these writers develop more um and and become you know the next generations uh terence dixie's and robert holmes's and all of those sorts of things but sadly doctor who did not have long left but i think i think uh it, I think it was headed in the right direction but this is clearly a, a developmental stage uh, it would be interesting to ask Andrew if two seasons later he would have allowed a, an ice planet because I think it does take a, a lot of goodwill on 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 the part of the viewer I, I, I'm i not en- entirely sure why Kane in the 3000 years didn't check that his home world hadn't been destroyed I mean he obviously doesn't have the space internet Uh this this was this is astonishing. Of course, this is Raiders of the Lost Ark, uh, in Doctor Who. And it's brilliant, that is really well done and pretty grim. Um uh and, and a great way to end the season. There's a great model shot. Yeah, I'm as I say I'm I, I mean, you know, there's one thing on being so focused on your revenge at the expense of all else, but um it's always it, somebody'd have rung up so I'm gonna come and kill you. What what? They've gone. Where have they? Have they moved? The planet's been destroyed. Oh, okay. um, but there we go. Um, and y- you, know, this is this is a real sign of um, uh, how even this late in Doctor Who's um, making. You know, we uh, we used to sort of p- people leaving overnight in the sixties and seventies. We go, oh, yeah, well, that that was back in the day. Um, she. I, th- I think it was that they they, they weren't sure she was going to leave and, and, and this is a hastily contrived exit now wh- why would you stop going through space and time with the Doctor to go through just space with glitz I've no idea that aside this is a lovely speech he does it really well there's a real melancholy he's like a sad bird Sylvester McCoy that, that lovely sort of Quizz- quizzical melancholy face that he has he's got a brilliant face it's the perfect face for a doctor it's it's you know a clown like but also maudlin uh, uh, a wistfulness that he has from you know time travel and and all, all the death and destruction you encounter as a part of it and, and he and Bonnie Langford do that very well and I feel for Bonnie Langford now. I was delighted she was going because um, just the very idea that Bonnie Langford was in Doc Two was something that I was teased about. Um, but I think that was a lack of imagination on all our parts. Uh, and and actually, uh, with 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 time taking us further away from that, she doesn't stick out in this particularly. Um, and she's a very game. She's a very game performer uh and i think mel's quite jolly (laughs) oh yes Uh, i wonder what they got up to glitz and (laughs) it is oh that's very sweet yeah bye but uh, yeah i don't i don't know why you've gone um and uh, and here we start one of the great Doctor Who pairings uh, that they do really interesting things with. So it's a it's a launch pad. This really um, uh, f- for a series that that very quickly um, learns what it does well and learns what it shouldn't try to do. And I'd, I'd be interested to talk to to Andrew to see whether he gives any ground as as to. Well, and to see why he chose this one, I gave him the choice of the stories that were left, and he and he chose this one. Um, so I, I'd be interested to see all sorts of, to to discuss it with him. Um, come on, uh, they've got a sale on because the the, the the proprietor's home planet's been destroyed, and they've got uh, they've got to get some good reviews on TripAdvisor uh, to make up for the, the the mass murder of the last set of customers. Um... So there we go that was that was dragon fire which i was as i say i i hadn't seen for a while and i'd i'd liked at the time more than some um but then i think because the last time i saw delta in the bannerman i absolutely adored it uh and i think i i preferred then th- the attempt to be a bit more fun and a bit more silly, so the, the the fact that this one takes itself quite seriously in places, I thought, well, that, that is too much of a clash with the obvious limitations and the slight campiness of the of, of the production. But I, I actually I thought that melded quite well. Lynn uh Lynn Gardner, who is the uh Tannoy announcer, was supposed to play Ray in Delta in the Banner Men and she broke her leg or damaged herself anyway and had to drop out. So it's very decent of Chris Clough to give her a, a paid job on the, she I still she still got paid for being Ray, but to give her a credit for her CV and uh, and a paid job uh, on the show that she couldn't be in through injury. So well done, Chris Clough. That was very decent of you. Um, this business does have, actually, for all all its its reports of you know backstabbing and bitchiness and narcissism and vainness, that, that they are actually d- decent people, and you can you can be very well looked after. Um, if you if you're lucky enough to work with the right people um, so I've got to choose two things about dragon fire one about part three and one general over all uh, I think I have to choose I'm tempted to choose bazin and McLuhan uh, but I think I'm going to choose. Whose deaths you see in the DVD menu? I hate that. Um, It's not as bad as the horror Fang Rock one, though, which basically shows you what happens to every single guest character. Uh, If I had time, I'd find out who did that, and I'd go and tell them off. Um, I think I'm going to choose for episode three. Well, I'm tempted to choose the music because Dominic Glynn is so good and Edward Peel as Kane because uh, he's so good. I've got to think about what Andrew Cartmel is going to choose as well to see if I can choose the same as him Uh, and I've got to also not be predictable. So do I want to choose the melty face? I've got four things. I've got, I've got Basil and McLuhan, I've got the Melty Face, I've got Edward Peel, and I've got Dominic Glynn. And I was I was sort of saving Edward Peel and Dominic Glynn as my jokers, uh, in case there were other things I I couldn't choose. And I've chosen a scene in Episodes 1 and 2. I am going to choose... I'm going to choose... I, I like Bazin and McGloon going... through. I like that subplot. I, I really like her performance. Um, that's no disrespect to Stuart Organ. I don't think he's got as good, as good a part and he does it perfectly well, but I quite like severe gun-toting people. They they, they do it for me. Uh, and I'm going to choose The Melty Face because it was amazing. It was I, I'm going to do lots of these stories and I'm sure Dominic Glynn's music will be a featured uh will be a choice in in pretty much all of them and his score for this is great but i'm going to go on record with bazin and McLuhan and the melty face of edward peel who also just misses out even though he's great uh and i could have chosen him in any episode because he's consistently good but i wonder what andrew cartmel has slash will Choose have chosen. So let's go to the future. Um, and now we go to although you haven't broken it up into episodes, the final episode from with this. You want
1: me to say what I'm saying first because you've written it down.
0: Uh, I will do I will do that um and I'll just establish um because each episode is separate um although Andrew hasn't chosen necessarily th- specific episodical things that's okay because I've chosen one from episode three and then a general thing for the whole story so uh, it's two things I am choosing now and I also have the two things I nearly chose uh, because okay. it was an embarrassment of riches
1: well let me give you two things yeah then. um Winnie and I and I sat down to plot the story we, we Put a lot of work into the details of what was going on in terms of what people were looking for and why it was there and we loved the notion that there was a, a dragon guarding a treasure but the dragon was the treasure and then when the skull opens and we find the crystal inside uh i've always been very proud so that's one of the things the other thing is somewhat self-servingly the crazy paving speech mm yeah, well,
0: those are those are two things. i I did go on quite a lot about the
1: the 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 treasure
0: being the dragon because that's that's a great in terms of a dramatic lift, you know, at, at a crucial point in the story. that's a that's a great piece of sort of plotting and uh, I think they call it now a WTF moment.
1: Yeah, well also it is uh, it's a really good twist and a reveal. and also it's just a beautiful intertwining of two tropes, the creature that that uh, guards. The, the the cash of gold and the cash of gold.
0: Yeah, and I and, and I think the the crazy paving speech is sort of acknowledged as a classic. I, I feel i I might have been a bit lazy had I chosen that. Um, and also because I chosen a scene and a sort of scene for episodes one and two. I chose slightly different well, I chose the obvious just because I remember watching it as a kid and it was a my goodness. Um, another WTF mode. Let me, me
1: guess—is oh, Eddie Peel's face? It's,
0: it's Melty Face.
1: It's Melty <laughs> Face. Yeah. I'm uh, glad. I'm glad I guessed. <laughs> uh,
0: and I actually asked a question at a panopticon that you were at when I was an errant child, um, and uh, uh, and I got really really nervous. It was really funny because oh, I because the story was in my head, but it's people from Doctor Who, and uh, and I'd said, had you. Had you guys put that in because it was self-consciously an end of season moment because you knew that it was the the last story in the last episode. You sort of basically said, no, it was just, you know, great for the end of the story. But uh, it did feel like, oh, you know, the season, this season's come to a close. There's a there's a big moment at the end, but it's really well done and it stands up today. It's great.
1: Yeah. And in fact, somebody we should include the unedited version of that because it was considerably trimmed it it was in its full glory it's even more gruesome it is of course also the same basic technique that they use in Raiders the Lost Ark for melting Nazi (laughs) number one Uh, but I think what I should have said to younger Toby if I'd been more on the ball was that we were never entirely sure what sequence the stories would go out in it was never entirely fixed but things could get juggled around especially with those last two, the, the all-OB the all and the old studio three-parters. So uh, it couldn't really have been a, a, a carefully planned, deliberate end of season.
0: Right. You, you may well have said that. It was a, a long time ago. But you were very nice to a stuttering child. Um, you and Ian, I remember. Um, uh, now, I'll tell you what I do. Here's what you could have won, what I nearly chose. And actually, what I thought at the beginning of the process, I probably would have chosen. These would have been what I'd have fallen to if I'd found nothing else to enjoy Uh, is obviously, I think Edward Peel is a fantastic villain. Uh, He judges it absolutely perfectly. He is ice cold Um, and also. Or
1: one might say even ice hot.
0: Well, indeed. (laughs) Another story. Uh, and, And another story in which my next choice is involved, who I think will get chosen a lot during this process. So I thought it would be cheating and repetitive just because I don't think he ever puts a foot wrong. And that is Mr. Dominic Glynn, whose music I think is cracking.
1: Oh, yes. uh, I would say that, you know, survival and Happiness Patrol are are two of the towering masterpieces that he created. But uh, Dominic, yes, I just think we had a lot of talented people doing the music for who and I liked all of them. But Dominic, I think, is is the greatest. I, I love his stuff particularly. And he's a good mate. And uh, I'm now writing a vinyl detective thriller about techno music. So I'm on the phone to him all the time. Oh, he, was, <laughs> he was part of that scene in the 90s and, and the early 2000s. Well,
0: he's very kindly done me a theme to one of my sister podcasts to this. But uh, but that's not that's, that's not why I chose him. He, off, I put a plea on Facebook for up and coming comedians. And he went, I'll do it. Uh, not comedians, up and coming musicians. And he went, I'll do it. Yeah. I've got time. Uh, so the thing I chose, this might surprise you, but I liked it the first time around. And it still worked for me this time around. I liked uh, Basin and McGloohan's Ant Hunt. Uh, Just because I thought they were nice characters, they were nicely played. It was a little subplot that that one of those things that you can do in Doctor Who, whereas you could provide a couple of characters who you like, uh, who get things to do, who have their own little thing that happens that's tangential to the plot, but sort of important because they have to kill the dragon, uh, but that just keeps you interested in a sort of
1: B-plot. Let me give you a couple of quick uh, observations about that. Ian adored... James Cameron's Aliens yeah. and the bug. He always loved the bug hunt in that. And he wanted to come up with something equivalent and he came up with this cool thing that they call the alien an A-N-T, an aggressive non-terrestrial. So he could have an ant hunt instead of a bug hunt. That's one of the memories that, <laughs> that comes back to me and how much he loved fashion. that. And the other thing is, I remember when one character throws the other character this huge gun and they just catch it. And I was in the studio when they were shooting that. And I said, that gun's heavy. You know the prop is very light, but they've got to act like it's heavy, and they took that note, and it really looks like they're being thrown this very heavy blast, you know. And every time I see it, I feel a little thrill of satisfaction. Oh, you, <laughs> did, you gave it that re- that
0: realism. There was a slightly strange moment though that really jumped out to me. And I think she's brilliant, Stephanie Fairman, who plays McGowan. But she has this curious line that seems to me no. Oh,
1: sorry, man. Steve Broster Should I just chat while you're there? That'd be creepy, wouldn't it? You think you a cup of <laughs> this,
0: this, this is DVD talk
1: chance
0: at this point Andrew took the call in order to negotiate his fee for the forthcoming season 24 Doctor Who blu-ray release but that negotiation was neither for my ear nor for yours anyway then we got back to it right
1: uh I interrupted I was
0: going to ask you a question which I uh, about um my my thing that sorry let
1: look this is lots of fun. It's really interesting
0: and this is great because uh, everyone has reacted to this very differently and I've had some really...
1: Well, we were talking about the bug hunt and about throwing the gun and it's just one of those little moments that I've always maintained this proud pride about because there was often things that we didn't get right but there were things that you could just get right by just passing a note to John or to the director or to the to the actor's via. so you never talk directly to an actor because that would be naughty. Uh, but but yeah, occasionally we could just sneak in quickly before a take and elevate something, and that was an occasion where we did that. I um one a part of it that is, and I still like it, and I like the
0: performance and I like the characters. But one bit that really stuck out is where McLuhan says, "Mr. Kane wants the head, and I ain't never leave a job half done." And you go, "Oh, was this was this written to be done in Cockney or n- Northern? But she's done it RP, and it was it was quite a jar. It, it did amuse me, but uh... oh, I,
1: I didn't notice that in the viewing of it. I'd have to go back and look at the scripts, but I don't particularly. I think she just fluffs the line. Is that? Yeah, possible? it's it's
0: a it's a funny one. It, it does it. Yeah, it's a sudden jar. It's an, it doesn't matter.
1: Um, uh, I think it might just have been that she fluffed the line. There wasn't time for a retake. And when I say fluffed the line, we're talking about top actors here, really great uh, actors. She's great. Everybody fluffed the line sometimes. Just unfortunately on Doctor Who, there was not always the time and the money to get to shoot everybody to their best advantage. That would be my guess about what it was, but you would have to look at Briggsy's script to see if... I don't think she'd been written in any particularly demotic way, though. Right. Well, it's she's still great. It's
0: just that that bit uh, just sort of amused well, me. They're all
1: good because they've got these really interesting names, which I think are all taken from film critics. <laughs> yes. From, from, from film analysts, you know, the, the upper end of intellectual film critics. But anyway, I know that Ian had a scheme for choosing the names. They're really cool names, but they've all... God, yeah, they're not ciphers. They're not two-dimensional cardboard cutouts. They're all interesting characters.
0: No, they're, they're, yes, they're film critics and film theorists. I, I, did, I did wonder during it why, therefore, the customer that, didn't didn't have a name and why she wasn't called Barry Norman or something. But, that's <laughs> the word. It was a the
1: film theorist. That's exactly right. But what I wanted to get in here at some point that I think is so important and I haven't been able to say recently is whenever I'm interviewed about Ian, whenever I have a chance to talk to him about, about him, I always bang on about what genius writer he is in terms of character which is true but watching this again I thought you know what his dialogue is really first rate as well he's a terrific terrific writer of dialogue so uh, I feel that I've neglected that at the expense of the superb nature of his characterization and if I seem to be singing rapturously about Ian it's because he was so damn good
0: and still is
1: just needs to be they need to commission him for the new series that's what they need to do
0: yeah, well, I mean, uh, that was something I talked about in the in the commentary is that you had you had a, I think, a laudable policy of going, what do we do with Doctor Two? Do we get um, people who I know can deliver on time and and will do a do a job, which was often Doctor Who's history is littered with that. And it's a perfectly reasonable approach when you're making serious television up against it or what so, you did.
1: Toby, allow me to make this observation. Those safe hands who were always hired because they could deliver on time and do a workmanlike job they were always handing in scripts that didn't work. Not because because they were grossly incompetent, but because Doctor Who is a really tough format to crack. I mean, if you're Robert Holmes, you're in a pretty good position, but if you're just about anybody else, it's a really tough format to crack. I'd say Robert Holmes or Ben Aronovich, maybe Mark Platt. The only reason I say maybe is because Mark loves the show so deeply, he can get lost in a a kind of um, mirrored hall of Doctor Who lore. Uh, whereas people like Ben Aronovich, even more than than Robert Holmes, would always be following their their guide through the labyrinth would always be to write a cracking piece of tight television drama. Uh, so um, the way that most television dramatists failed was that they just had no idea what, uh, what is Doctor. to, even if they understood science fiction. Say that you were uh, somebody who's nurtured on something like Quatermass one of the greatest TV science fiction things of all time. That would not qualify you to write for Doctor Who because Doctor Who was just kind of a different beast. Although it wouldn't be a bad background, I must oh. say. I must say, Quatermaster Doctor Who would be an interesting transition. But it, Who wasn't strictly just science fiction. It was something out of its own peculiar little thing. And it was not easy getting uh, writers attuned to that thing.
0: But what you did was you, you, you... You, you got relatively new writers and you gave them a break, and, and they were obviously hungry for the challenge. It meant they used their imagination. I, I think it's a policy that um, obviously, you know, that, that paid off but, but did some good as well.
1: Well, we we gave these writers their first break. In the case of Stephen Wyatt, he, he already had a bit of a background. Uh, Graham Curry had sold a radio script. Um, Rona was had been writing for some, I think, Take the High Road, a Scottish soap opera but otherwise I think we pretty much broke these guys into television
0: Well that's brilliant Well look you've been the first person that's worked on the show that's chosen uh, a story for me and I gave you the list of the McCoys that were left because they're getting snapped up I have to say in the the week that uh, I'm talking to you I've had somebody send me an enthusiastic video about Time and the Rani and uh, a 20 minute monologue about Remembrance of the Daleks (laughs) Well
1: that is a story worth a 20 minute monologue um, I wanted to say just I, when, I, when I chose the crazy paving speech and said it's self-serving, I'd like to just very briefly—not 20 minutes, like—but just briefly explain what I meant by that. For anybody who doesn't know, and I'm sure there's millions, I wrote a couple of short audition scripts when we were casting the doctor, and one of these was a farewell scene between the doctor and the companion. I wrote two different short scripts one of which showed the doctor is hard and the other is soft in other words in one of them he's confronting a baddie and showing strength and uh, um, darkness and a hard edge whereas the other scene which obviously was the idea was to show the to give the actor a chance to show their range so the other scene was written in complete contrast so it was a soft sad sentimental farewell scene where the companion's leaving and the doctor is missing her already. And so I wrote the scene and everybody loved it. Uh, it was written under the influence of Nick, Nicholas Rogue, who was a filmmaker who would fragment time in really interesting ways. If you see films like Don't Look Now or Bad Timing or Performance, you'll see what I mean. And Alan Moore, who was very much following in that, in the same mold, who was under the influence of Nick Rogue who had written this incredible thing about... Dr. Manhattan, I say it that way because I can never remember if it was Dr. Manhattan or Professor Manhattan in The Watchman who sees time in this same kaleidoscopic way. So I wrote something uh, in that vein and it came off really well and everybody loved it. And Sylvester loved it so much he kept trying to get it, to crowbar it into the show at some point. And so when we had Bonnie Langford actually leaving, he was really keen to do that scene. So, And we were really keen not to stick a piece of somebody else's writing into Ian's script so Ian wrote his version of that scene and did a very good job but uh the way it the way they went about it was that Sylvester uh well, I, the, from the production office across the corridor Chris Club's production office where they were making Dragonfire they said oh could we just see the original audition script just so we can compare it and, <laughs> and the next thing I knew they were photocopying it and sort of sticking it in the script and I can't pretend that I was entirely unhappy about that because no writer feels bad about having their words spoken by terrific actors and being immortalized to some extent uh, you know in a TV show. So but, but Ian was a bit disappointed about that. so I, I've always feel a little bit conflicted about that. and the reason I say it's self-serving is because some of those words in that scene were my words, but it comes off really well and I think it's a good moment in the show.
0: And that's it's okay it's perfectly okay to be happy with something you've done that people like. That's okay. Um, well, look, Andrew, thank you. And and I will say I have to point out um, that there I, I do have this, uh, I think, 18, 20 minute monologue about Remembrance of the Daleks, but I haven't listened to it because, of course, I never listen to the reasons until after I've watched the show. I just check it for technical quality at the beginning. So it is an undiscovered country for me, but it's one that's going to take me. Between eighteen to twenty minutes to get to. Um, well, Andrew, thank you so much for being game for this and for entering into it with such enthusiasm and offering, rather than just to give a reason, but to give some insight into the process. Because I know that uh, whoever watches this will be thrilled by that. So thank
1: you. Well, it's been—it's really been fun.
0: So that was what Andrew chose. Uh, I don't know that yet. So as I round off this episode you know something i don't so i've actually managed to get right to the end of the story without being aware of a vital piece of information which is as we've discovered strangely apposite Uh, (laughs) and so with that i think i'm just going to go and look out the window see you next time for another story that will hopefully take us to one of our happy times and places Thank you so much for listening to this omnibus edition of Happy Times and Places, presented by me, Toby Haydoke, with thanks to my special guest, Andrew Cartmel, who you can find on Twitter at Andrew Cartmel, and whose blog is venusianfrogbroth.blogspot.com. Thanks to, to patrons without whom these podcasts simply wouldn't be possible. They include Ruben Herfindahl, Peter Harness, Rob Leonard, Stephen Moffat, Richard Straw, Ian Gillespie, James Gould, Lisa C Greco, Dave Hoskin, Jessica Jones, Andrew Jordan, Clive Lewis, Guy Lambert, James Lark, Gavin McLean, David Mathewman, John McClay, Ross McPhillips, Stuart Mitchell, Nathan Moore, Matthew Newton, Melvin Pena, Keith Pirrie, Jonathan Potter, Dylan Reese, John Rivers, Matt Sawyer, Keith Say, Len Stewart, Neil Tate and Nick Tedstone. The music is by Dave Gates and the artwork by Dylan Patterson. If you too would like to be a patron, you can go to patreon.com forward slash Toby Haydoke. Tiers start from as little as £3 a month and it's fairly egalitarian. You get most things even at the lowest Tier, and you also get a ten percent discount if you sign up for a whole year in one go. There's bonus material, there's very early material, and there's a mixture of all sorts of other things, and lots of interaction there as well. We have chats and all sorts. So do that uh, if you don't want to or can't. That's absolutely fine. Kofi.com gives you the option of doing a one-off payment. Kofi. .com forward slash Toby Haydoke is where you can find me but look I know that times are tough and just you listening is very important and I'm very grateful to you for doing so however what does cost nothing is to spread the word tell people if you enjoy this five star reviews on all your podcast outlets would really really help with my algorithms which always need a little bit of tweaking You can follow me on Twitter at Toby Haydoke. These podcasts have their own feed at Heydoke Podcasts. And if you want to know what I look like in real life, you can come to Excess Malaki Comedy Club every tuesday night at 8 p.m in manchester i am the regular mc there and i introduce four guests from the comedy circuit always of the highest quality and we have a non-profit making ethos which uh, is business suicide but it's kept us going comedically for 24 years uh, and it's a great club and always uh, fun to be had there for very little money on tuesday nights if of course you're in the vicinity of manchester if you're not we do a one-off monthly show first sunday of every month on twitch.tv forward slash excess malarkey.